This is Howard Anderson, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're talking with Attorney Melody Mosley-Gates about building support for the use of encryption to prevent breaches. Thanks for joining us today, Mel. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for inviting me. For starters, why don't you tell us a little bit about your firm and your role there? I work with Patton Boggs. We are a national law firm. Um, We have strong public policy roots, but we work in a variety of areas um, and commercial law, including a pretty significant focus in healthcare practice in both Denver and D.C. In my particular role, I focus on healthcare information technology issues along with other technology issues outside of the healthcare realm. And I particularly work with organizations that are concerned about compliance activities and transactions as they're related to privacy and information security. Okay, many of the hundreds of major health information breaches reported to federal authorities so far have involved the loss or theft of devices or media containing unencrypted data. So why isn't the use of encryption more widespread, do you think? You know, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. First off, despite all of the things that we see in the news on a regular basis, it's still my concern that a number of organizations simply don't get it. They don't value the data that they're carrying around or they don't recognize that there's a need to protect it with tools like encryption. That's one part of the community. I think for another part of the community, Encryption just has a certain reputation of being difficult to implement. It's a high-touch implementation for IT organizations, and by that I mean you need to interact and schedule with every user, with every device. You have to sit down with people, make sure they understand the dynamics of it. So it's just a high-touch implementation. In the past, also, encryption had a bit of a reputation with IT organizations for being difficult to implement, hard to deal with, problematic, um, causing problems with other software, slowing machines down. And, you know, several years ago, some of those concerns, I would say, were fair. Um, In the past, I was a chief information security officer for a large telecom organization, and we deployed encryption to um, a large number of devices. And we were fairly early in the curve, and, and it could be difficult. But, you know, that was some time ago. These days, the software is much better. The implementations are much easier. So it's not nearly as difficult of a thing to do. However, IT organizations tend to have really long memories. And so I think that's another one of the challenges that organizations have is a number of their IT staff may be looking at that reputation, if you will, that encryption had several years ago and they're worried about it. They're not comfortable with it. They're not as eager to get out there and get it done as you might like them to be. Um, So it's really an education process, I think, for both of those communities, for that community that doesn't understand the value proposition and the need for encryption, and then also that community of those long memories in IT to say, hey, look, you know, the software's gotten better. Take another look at it. Try it again. So you recommend a small-scale pilot of encryption to help win over skeptics and educate people. Can you explain how that approach works? You know, I think there are a couple of of real wins out of a small pilot kind of approach. You know, again, encryption can be a high-touch implementation. It can be very impactful for an organization in terms of scheduling. You've got to get to every device. You've got to get to every person potentially that's carrying a mobile device, that means you've got to disrupt their workday in some way. 
also, we've got those credibility issues with encryption. Is it going to cause me a problem? Is it going to be hard? Both of those factors put you into what I call a show-me kind of situation if you really want to have a successful project. And so the way you can make that work with a small pilot is to carve out a subset of your organization. Um, it might be one particular work group, but the concern I have with choosing a particular work group is what you're trying to do here is learn about what the organization is going to need, what issues are going to come up, and also build credibility with the organization. So I think the better way to choose a pilot is to look for people that can be champions, people that can be supporters out in different parts of your organization. And the ideal situation would be to choose a handful of people from several different business groups or process groups across your enterprise, have them involved in the pilot, and then they become your champions, if you will. They're able to tell others, hey, they've got the bugs worked out, this thing works, it's not a problem for me. You're able to get past some of those credibility issues and also get people um, out there in each one of the work groups who can help you build that awareness and value for encryption because it's always, I think, better to have someone who's actually hands-on in the work group who recognizes the value and can talk to their colleagues rather than having someone from the outside, whether that's legal or IT or another group, be the only ones that are talking up a particular project. So it's all about show me, and I think that's one of the best ways to make that small-scale pilot work is to pick out a handful of people in each group and give yourself a reasonable amount of time to walk through the problems that you find as you go along and make it very clear that you're taking those problems seriously and acting on them. You're literally building up a reputation for the project. At the same time, you're fixing technical problems. It can be a really powerful combination. Before applying encryption to stored data, organizations must determine where all their protected health information actually resides. What's the best way to do that, especially for unstructured data such as information in spreadsheets? Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Um, I think organizations um, struggle with this issue. I think every organization does to some extent because data has become so mobile um, in the in the recent past. And by mobile, I mean not just on mobile devices, though that's certainly the case in many organizations, but also um, in end-user computing environments, as you mentioned, in spreadsheets and documents and all sorts of places that are hard to track down. I think there are a couple of ways that can really help organizations go about inventorying and understanding where their data lives better. One of those is to take a business process view. Survey work groups interact with key work groups, and I think it's important to do this in a prioritized kind of way, picking out work groups that are the most likely to be interacting with this kind of information. Of course, at some point you want full coverage, but I think you can get a lot of bang for your buck by prioritizing in terms of who's the most likely to have access to this kind of data, and then map their business processes. So if you sit down and talk with them, rather than asking the question, what data do you have? on your shared server to instead say, tell me more about what you do. What kind of data might you have? So there's a business interaction way to do this. There's also a technical way to do this. There are tools available now, and this software is another great example of software that has gotten much better in the last few years. It's called data leakage prevention software. 
some people call it data loss prevention software um, or data loss protection software, and it's kind of funny. They all turn into the acronym DLP. So if you start looking at information security-related software and you look for DLP products, that's what you're getting. These products can do a lot of things in terms of protecting sensitive data within your environment. And one of the really interesting things they can do is they can help to scan your environment and inventory that kind of data, even if it's embedded out in things like Excel files. Um, it's not a simple process. It can be a lengthy one, but it can be very helpful. Um, for instance, this kind of software can be pointed at a shared server where work groups keep their spreadsheets and their documents and that kind of thing and can scan that content in an automated kind of way and come back and say, here are the hits we have for data that looks like it might be protected health information or looks like it might be a social security number. If you combine those two approaches, the business process, interviewing, prioritizing kind of process with the technical DLP-oriented kind of process, um, at that point, you can have some pretty good confidence that you've located a lot of the data that we're talking about. At the same time that you're doing both of those activities, you've also got a great opportunity to build awareness in your organization for why it's important to keep track of this kind of sensitive data and where it lives. Um, so again, you can see there's a running theme when we talk about encryption and protecting sensitive data that you need the combination of people and their awareness business processes and understanding those things and the right tools that, again, are getting much better just in the past few years. So I think there's a good news story on all three of those fronts. It's still a lot of hard work, but it's a very solvable problem. Should all mobile devices and media that store protected health information be routinely encrypted? And what about desktop PCs or servers? Should they be encrypted as well? You know, I think when we're talking about what devices should be encrypted and what data should be encrypted, it's important to always remember what we're talking about here is a risk calculation. What's it cost to encrypt something versus what's the benefit of encrypting that? Now, in the case of mobile devices, you know, I would offer that that risk calculation is almost a no-brainer. Uh, mobile devices, things happen to them. People lose stuff. People drop devices in airports. People leave them in taxi cabs. They get stolen out of cars. Bad things happen to mobile devices. And so I have to say, from my perspective, it's very hard for me to hear a convincing version of a risk calculation that says it's not worthwhile to encrypt every mobile device. So from my perspective, that's an objective that all organizations should have because there's just all sorts of sensitive data on those mobile devices. In the healthcare environment that we're talking about, enormously sensitive data and regulatory implications when those devices are lost. And nobody wants to be on the front page of the papers for tomorrow's breach. Um, but there's also a lot of other sensitive information stored on mobile devices. And so when organizations are thinking about that risk calculation, they need to be thinking even more broadly about the harm that they can suffer when those mobile devices are lost. It can range from organizational to personal embarrassment if, if emails or, or certain kinds of information is taken out of context, not with the intent that it may have um, originally been created with. There may be other sorts of liabilities that are created. Just a variety of issues that, again, make that risk calculation for mobile devices, um, given the ease of encrypting them these days, pretty much a no-brainer.
Now, when you start talking about desktop PCs and servers, that calculation gets a lot more complicated and becomes much more organization-specific. And so rather than blanket rules in those kinds of environments, it's important that organizations really take a hard look at what their IT environment looks like, where the data lives, and what their risks associated with them are. Um, in the case of desktop PCs, it may well be that with some minor changes to their business processes or their working environment, organizations may be able to get the sensitive data off of those desktop PCs and stored back in a more controlled, centralized kind of environment. And that may be a better approach from a cost perspective than encrypting every one of those desktop PCs. And so again, very organization specific once you get out of that mobile realm. In the case of servers, this is one place, servers and databases, where that old reputation that encryption has had for a number of years that it's hard to implement, it slows computers down, it can cause technical problems. Um, there's still some legitimate arguments on the server side for that with older applications, um, with certain kinds of databases. And so again, there's really not a good blanket rule for the server side. It's something an organization needs to take a good hard look at and really pressure their vendor for. You know, these days we see so many organizations um, looking at cloud computing solutions or looking at um, off-the-shelf software that they're buying from a vendor. They really need to be pressuring their vendors to say, make encryption happen, make it easy for us, make it work in this application environment. And so those kinds of issues come into play um, on the server side. Again, much more complicated set of scenarios um, than back on those mobile devices. Is it ever practical to just ban the storage of information on mobile devices or any other device for that matter to help minimize the cost of encryption? And how do you go about enforcing such a policy? And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Howard. Enforcing that kind of policy can be extremely difficult to do. And so for that reason, it's important for organizations, um, if they want to take the approach of, we're just going to ban having this kind of data on a device, you really have to take a deep breath and say, is this practical? Is this a policy that's going to be enforceable in my environment? Because frankly, the only thing worse than having no policy at all is to have a policy on your books that you don't enforce and that perhaps you can't even enforce it at the end of the day. There are technical solutions, um, data leakage prevention tools, data loss protection tools. Um, those kinds of software products can help you prevent downloads for certain kinds of data. Um, you can do things in your centralized environment so that data is not downloadable organizations um, have often adopted solutions, especially here recently, where the mobile device user doesn't carry any data on their device. Instead, they connect back to the central environment and the sensitive data lives there. Those kinds of solutions are great from a risk perspective because they minimize the opportunity for sensitive data to be on that mobile device. However, Every mobile device out there has a way for me to type data into it. Every device out there has a way for me to get an email from someone that perhaps I didn't expect to get, and perhaps the person on the other side of that email didn't realize that sending sensitive information that way wasn't the best idea. So in other words, even with the best of intentions and the most technically enforced policy out there, a ban for putting sensitive information on mobile devices at the end of the day is 
probably not going to be 100% effective. So take that reality, lay it against the ease of encrypting those mobile devices with the technical solutions that are out there these days. And I don't mean to make it sound as if large-scale deployments for encrypting mobile devices are a trivial or an easy thing to do. They're hard. They take hard work. But they can get done and they can get done effectively. So you can see where I'm going with this. The answers really do both. Have a policy in place that minimizes the amount of sensitive information that can land on a mobile device and still encrypt that mobile device. It may feel like belt and suspenders, but given the risk and the issues that can be created by an organization when that mobile device is lost, when a data breach occurs, again, that calculation really points to putting those protective measures in place. There have been some high-profile breaches involving the loss or theft of unencrypted backup tapes. Should these backup tapes be encrypted, and what are some other methods beyond backup tapes for securely backing up information? Yeah, backups are a really troubling area for a lot of organizations. In many cases, backups are being done off of legacy applications, a term that you know the IT community uses for something that's been out there for a while. Um, there can be some real feasibility issues with how backup tapes are created, which leads to a very costly environment to try and encrypt those. You know, the bottom line is backup tapes need to be protected if you're going to put your backups on removable media. Um, another approach, though, that organizations can look at, and, and many organizations engage in these days, is rather than using removable media, um, like tapes, to do their backups, which ultimately, that's the problem. When sensitive data lands on a removable thing that moves around, it can get lost. It can get stolen. Um, a good alternative to that is to instead use services that provide backup capabilities, data mirroring, basically copying your data from one location to another over the network. That may be from one data center to another, from one city to another, from one state to another provides you a couple of benefits. By doing those kinds of backups across a network, you can encrypt those connections, you can maintain a high level of control over that data. You also may potentially be able to recover more quickly from a disaster. You know, the reason we have backup tapes in the first place is to recover from certain sorts of disasters and events. If you're doing those online backups rather than those traditional tapes, you've got the potential of being able to recover more quickly. Now, migrating from the traditional tape environment to the online data mirroring environment um, can be a significant investment for organizations depending on how their applications are created. So it's another one of these examples that we come back to over and over of a cost-benefit trade-off and really sitting down and understanding what the risks are. And there are a number of other steps that you can take with your backup tapes. And again, talking with your software vendors, what can we do when these tapes are created to put encryption in the data stream, in the activities, if we're not able to control the backups in a more centralized kind of way? Um, you know, it's, it's not as simple as mobile devices where there's standard capabilities out there um, that everyone can use. In the environment of backups, it's much more challenging because there's so many application-specific and organizational-specific variables that have to be met. 
But organizations that have a significant number of tapes and a significant amount of sensitive data that's being handled in that way would be smart to start looking at, if they haven't already, this opportunity to do their backups online across a network in a way that they can control them and not have these removable storage devices running around. Well, thanks very much. We've been talking today with Melody Mosley-Gates of the law firm Patton Boggs. This is Howard Anderson. Thanks so very much for listening.